Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for this very special occasion as we spend the evening reflecting on the significance of Christ's death on our behalf. There's a word. There's a word that Christians use often. There's a word that churches use a lot. But interestingly, many Christians don't even know what the word really means. They feign like they understand. They kind of take from the context what they gather the definition might be. For many Christians, this word simply means all the Jesus stuff. It's the word gospel. The word gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul teaches the early church that the gospel in its essence is about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus specifically. It is about Jesus, God come to earth. That his death on the cross paid the price for sin. And three days later he would resurrect from the dead as, as with the authority to be able to forgive sin. To offer salvation. And to extend eternal life. The gospel. I've always felt like the gospel is a little like a diamond. It has so many different facets to it. And depending on how exactly you hold it, the light reflects off for one particular facet and grabs your attention. Like for instance, you might, you might look at the gospel in one light and you think about redemption. That the death of Jesus Christ paid the price to buy us back from slavery to sin. And then you just turn it ever so lightly and another facet's revealed. And maybe that's the facet of atonement. Where the sacrifice of Jesus Christ satisfies the righteous demand of a holy God. Again, turn it again and here's another facet. And maybe that's reconciliation. That human beings who are sinners can be reconciled to a relationship with a holy God and know him as their father in heaven. You turn the diamond around and there's a whole another host of facets. Maybe it's about response. You can look at the gospel as a response of, of humility. To stop and comprehend that the God of the universe shared his son Jesus with us sinners so that we might be forgiven. Romans tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It makes us humble to think that that might be true. Turn it again and, and you might look at the facet of repentance. That understanding the significance of Christ's death might provoke a, 
a sense of conviction in our heart that the way that I'm living is wrong. I've been invited to something different and better, something new. And I confess my sin and repent of my ways. Turn it again and you may be looking at the facet of gratefulness. Stopping to realize that because of Christ we, we have been saved. And, and what other response is there to be but other than grateful, thankful forever of the enormous difference that the death of Christ makes on our behalf. Tonight, I want to look at a different facet. One of hundreds of facets. You know, I, I pray in anticipation of services that we experience together and I ask God, what, what do you want me to talk about tonight? What do you want me to talk about on that evening? And in the way that I hear the voice of God, he answers. And, and so often I say to myself, really? Are you sure? Did I hear you right? And tonight's one of those nights where I was like, really? But I've learned to trust it. And so I'll share with you what's on my heart. Earlier in our evening together, we considered the death of Jesus from the perspective of Nicodemus. And some of you who attend Cibolo Creek here on Sundays, you may know that we recently took a look at Nicodemus on a Sunday morning. You may remember that I was explaining to you that Nicodemus was a really big deal. He was a really big deal, a very, very important person. First of all, he was a Pharisee. Now the Pharisees in their, in their origins, they, they were these, these men of of deep devotion to God. They had this enormous respect for the Jewish scriptures. Down in their soul, they wanted nothing more than to preserve the very best of what it meant to be God's people, the, the nation of Israel. They literally gave their lives to preserve all that was right and good about Israel's relationship to God. They were Deeply disciplined and devoted men. Nicodemus was one of them. Nicodemus was also a member of the Sanhedrin. In the entire nation of Israel, only 71 men would qualify to be a member of the Sanhedrin. It was essentially a, a, a ruling council that oversaw civic and religious affairs in the nation of Israel. He was one of 71 Jesus refers to Nicodemus as the teacher of Israel. It infers that somehow Nicodemus was like one of the best of the best when it came to teaching people the, the laws of God. That everybody wanted to know what Nicodemus thought and how Nicodemus saw it and what Nicodemus understood. So the first time that we meet Nicodemus is in John chapter 3. And he comes to... He comes to meet with Jesus under the cover of darkness. 
Now, there's a lot of conjecture about why that happened at night. Most conjecture agrees that it was to hide the conversation that Nicodemus and who he was in society, he couldn't afford to be seen with Jesus in a conversation because Jesus was the enemy. Jesus was the bad guy in relationship to the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees because Jesus was teaching things that were contrary to how the the Pharisees and the rabbis of their day taught the Jewish scriptures. He, he was causing people to question the authority of the rabbis and the Pharisees and their influence in the nation of Israel. And so they, they wanted to get rid of Jesus. So Nicodemus was, was taking great risk to be seen having a conversation with Jesus. And so he, he comes at night. And they end up having a conversation where they explore Issues and ideas and perspectives of faith. And Nicodemus admits that night that, that he believed that Jesus was from God. He, he, he didn't say he was God. He didn't recognize Jesus to be the Messiah. He just says, there's something unique about you that you must you must have God somewhere related to you because nobody could do the things that you do. Nicodemus is also then mentioned again in John chapter 7. Jesus has created quite a ruckus and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day are very, very disappointed and very, very frustrated with Jesus. And they're plotting to have Jesus killed. And it's Nicodemus who steps up in one of these big meetings and he says, no, wait, wait a second, wait a second. We can't kill the guy because we have rules, we have laws and it's required by our law that he must allow at least to explain himself and we haven't given him an audience. And Nicodemus actually gets questioned by some of his peers and they ask him, have you, have you now also been unduly influenced by this rabbi from Nazareth? Then we meet Nicodemus again in John chapter 19. It's when Jesus has been crucified. He's now died. Jesus was executed by the Romans. The typical custom of a dead body taken off of a Roman cross is that it would literally just be thrown into the garbage dump. The place where the crosses were set up was where the nation of Israel brought all of their trash in Jerusalem. A criminal crucified by Rome did not deserve a burial. Their body would be laid in the trash to rot. But two men, two men, they wanted to do something better than that. They wanted to provide at least some sort of honor for this rabbi from Nazareth, this Jesus. And so two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they use their influence and they go to Pilate and they request, can we make an exception? Could, could we have the body so that we might lay him to rest with some, some sort of respect? So listen to this. This is John chapter 19. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. 
Now listen carefully. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. You listening? But secretly. Because he feared the Jewish leaders. Let's hang on to that for a minute. With Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. And he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night, back there in John chapter 3. And Nicodemus, he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. That's, that's a lot. And taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in, in accordance with Jewish burial customs as Nicodemus and Joseph would know very specifically. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So Nicodemus, he helps with the burial of Jesus following the crucifixion. It seems that he leverages his influence to, to convince the Romans to let them have access to the body. And after that, we know nothing. That's, that's all we know about Nicodemus. And so we're left with questions about the nature of his faith. I asked the question, what exactly did Nicodemus believe about Jesus? Now, now, we read in the passage that Joseph of Arimathea, his friend with him, was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. Now, nothing is similarly said of Nicodemus, but we might Assume that the same is true of him as was true of Joseph because they traveled together. They, they ran around with one another. So we ask questions. Was, was Nicodemus intrigued with Jesus? Was, was he a fan of Jesus? Was he a Christ follower? By his participation in providing for the body of Jesus... Was he making some kind of gesture of goodwill toward Jesus as a reflection of some kind of a budding faith? Or maybe, was he simply there to appease a guilty conscience? Because he hadn't spoken up earlier. He hadn't used his power, his influence to change the events that transpired that led to Jesus' crucifixion. What we don't see is we don't see a clear and courageous declaration of faith in Jesus as Lord from Nicodemus. Peter made one. Matthew made one. Thomas the doubter made one. But Nicodemus, we have no record of him ever declaring faith in Jesus. Being the curious person that I am, I've, I've, I've tried to understand that. It's like he was so close. 
And all I keep coming up with is some kind of reluctant reservation. Now, he may not have been as utterly opposed to Jesus as his Pharisee brothers were. He, he certainly was not all in as the other disciples. It's like Nicodemus seems suspended somewhere in the middle. And I'm trying to figure that out. The passage says that Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple. Is there even such a thing? Evidently there is. But does anybody really want to be described that way? Is the, is the, the title a secret disciple a compliment? Or is it in fact a criticism? After considering Nicodemus, here's what I've come to believe at this point in time that Nicodemus was reluctant to take a stand for Jesus for fear of what it might mean to his life. Did you hear that? Nicodemus was reluctant to take a stand for Jesus for fear of what it might mean to his life. You see, he enjoyed station in life. He was comfortable, he was successful, and with his influence and success would come privilege and benefits that were afforded to him, and he wasn't willing to give that up. With his station in life, he had tremendous status in his community. He was influential, he was powerful, he was highly regarded, he was deeply respected, and he wasn't willing to give that up. I'm curious that Nicodemus was afraid to outright profess his faith in Jesus for fear of what it might mean to his social standing among his peers. What about us? What about you? Do you find yourself reluctant to live for Jesus out loud for fear of what it might mean in the company of your friends? What it might mean to your peers at work? What it might mean to your spouse or your partner? What it might mean to your parents or your siblings? In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, we read this. Speaking of Jesus, he himself bore our sin in his body on that cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. It's been by his wounds that we are healed So here tonight, sitting with what you know, what you believe, what you understand to be true about Jesus, what you know and understand to be true about his crucifixion, what you know and understand to be true about his resurrection, how can you possibly remain casual about Jesus? 
Knowing what you and I know about Jesus, how could any of us ever remain a secret disciple? How could any of us dabble around the edges of our faith in Christ? How could we ever be worried about what others might think? How could we ever be afraid of what it might mean to our standing among our fears and our, uh, our friends and our associates? How could we ever be afraid of the impact it might have in our work? Do you and I understand that we wouldn't be here tonight if it hadn't been for a handful of men and women, although originally reluctant, they witnessed the resurrected Jesus and they became courageous and confident to speak the name of Jesus publicly at great risk to their life. Most of them died the death of martyrs. So tonight, as we stare into that diamond of the gospel, tonight I invite you to consider the gospel from the facet of bold devotion. Bold devotion to Jesus in return for his bold devotion to you. To take a stand for Jesus in your family, at your job, among your friends. I'm not talking about being a jerk or being annoying to people with your preaching. I'm talking about refusing to back down when Jesus and those who follow him are mocked or dismissed as ignorant or extreme. Knowing what you know about the cross, I invite all of us as Christians to speak up, to stand up, to man up. To boldly live out our faith without reservation in all expressions of morality and ethics. To speak of him when the opportunity is presented. And to speak up boldly for our Savior. Tonight, let this be the night that you refuse. You refuse to be numbered among secret disciples. There's plenty of them in our world. Tonight, at the foot of the cross, in this day's events in the life of Jesus, some 2,000 years ago, let it be the day that we decide to boldly proclaim our faith in Jesus because we understand he was crucified for you. He died for you. He rose from the dead for you. He secured your forgiveness, your salvation, your hope of eternal life at great expense to himself. So in the words of the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi, I read this. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Did you hear that? Let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I remain absent, Paul writes, that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith 
of the gospel. Maybe it's here tonight that some of you make the decision, I'm done with being a secret disciple. From this day forward, I will live boldly, courageously, confidently as a follower of Jesus Christ wherever my life may take me. Not because of anything I said, but because what we are reminded about that happened on this day 2,000 years ago when Jesus willingly gave his life for you. So tonight, it's fitting that we take communion. You'll find the elements for communion underneath your seat and invite everyone to, to join us. In the item that you find, you'll find a cracker. This cracker reminds us of the body of Jesus. The body of Jesus that hung on that cross. That endured the excruciating torture of the hours that Jesus gave his life for you. The body that that hung there in your place, my place, our place. The instructions were that as often as you eat this bread, we, we, were, to, we were to remember the gospel. Christ giving his life for us. How, how can I be reluctant to be named as one of his? His body on our behalf makes all the difference in the world for us. So as often as you eat this bread, do this in remembrance of Jesus. represents a covenant that the father and the son made together where the father would accept the sacrifice of Jesus as being sufficient to pay for the sins of the whole world as often as you drink this cup remember that Christ emptied himself completely of life for you, for me. There's no space to be secret about this anymore. This and this alone is all the reason in the world for us to stand up, speak up, and represent Christ 
proudly and confidently and courageously in a world that wants us to dismiss him, to forget him, to reject him. But we will not. We will not. For as often as we drink this cup, we do this in remembrance of Jesus. ask you to invite I invite you to bow your head just just take a moment in the quietness of your own heart and mind and reflect ask yourself honestly Am I living like some secret disciple of Jesus? Trying my best to manage my world, my life, my relationships without making too much of a stir about it? Being quiet when I hear Christ criticized? Father in heaven as we reflect on the significance of this evening 2,000 years ago the awful excruciating torture that your son endured on the cross for us what we say we believe about his resurrection from the dead his authority to grant us the forgiveness of our sin, the gift of salvation, the hope of eternal life. God, help us to come to the conclusion that there's there's no greater truth in all the world. There's no other reason why I shouldn't be completely confident, courageous, and clear about the decision I've made to follow you, to be your ambassador in this world amongst my friends, the people that we work with, the people we live next door to, our families, our spouses, our kids. God, may this night mark us That if we are living with with any shame of the gospel, if we're living with any kind of secrecy about what it is to be a follower of yours, that tonight we resolve no more. No more. Give us that courage, that confidence, that clarity, I pray. In the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.